I'm Scott. I'm Bill. And, and we're, we're the, the Trade, Trade Guys. Guys. You're listening to The Trade Guys, a podcast produced by CSIS where we talk about trade in terms that everyone can understand. I'm H. Andrew Schwartz, and I'm here with Scott Miller and Bill Reinch, the CSIS Trade Guys. On this week's episode of Trade Guys, we discuss the EU-US green steel and aluminum negotiations, the latest imports data from China, and the aftermath of last year's infant formula shortage. All that and more on Trade Guys. Good afternoon, Trade Guys. This is one of those past weeks where the world of trade has been on the quieter side and then everything happens everywhere all at once. So we have a lot to unpack now and we already know we'll have a lot to unpack next week. So let's start with the EU-US green steel deal. This is an ongoing story as US and European trade negotiators are struggling to strike a deal to govern steel and aluminum trade which apparently they must do by October. So the deal, otherwise known as GASA, the Global Arrangement on Sustainable Steel and Aluminum, is proving an increasingly thorny subject. So Bill and Scott, can we go over what the holdup is on that green steel deal? Where do both sides differ? Where do they agree? Well, first we should know this is a wonderful new acronym, GASA. You know, trade is a language of acronyms and being able to talk about GASA, it's right up there with a whole paw, in my view. So I'm looking forward to many discussions about GASA. Thibault is right. It expires on October 31st, which means that unless the agreement is extended, not GASA, we don't have GASA, the ceasefire, if you will, on tariffs expires October 31st. If it is not extended, that means the Trump tariffs and the European retaliation will go back into effect automatically after that date. Right now, the betting is that they won't reach an agreement by October 31st. Different people have different views about that. I think if you talk to the Americans, they'll tell you things are moving along rather nicely. You talk to the Europeans, they'll tell you there's been very little progress. And I think realistically, I can't find anybody that's optimistic, aside from perhaps Ambassador Tai, that they'll reach an agreement by October 31st. That said, you know, the whole history of trade negotiations is everything comes together at the end. You know, it, it, you wait for the end. It's like that movie, the Hotel Marigold movie, I'm forgetting the name of it, where the character says, you know, everything will be all right at the end. And if everything is not all right, it's not yet the end. And so we have to wait. Look for a flurry activity at the end of October. I think the negotiations for a long time featured the two countries talking past each other. The Europeans wanted to focus on green in Gaza. The idea of transitioning both steel and aluminum into greener uh, industries. And they wanted to make sure that their main tool for doing that, the cross-border CBAM, cross-border adjustment mechanism, was kept intact in doing that. The U.S. wanted to focus more on Chinese overcapacity, which they believe, I think correctly, is the source of a lot of the global steel problem. And they were interested in trying to do things on the trade side that would have enabled both European and EU nations and the United States to counteract Chinese overcapacity in steel. And the U.S., it, it devolved now, I think, into a discussion about the the U.S. wants to be exempt from the European CBAM, and the Europeans don't want to do that. I think they don't want to do it for several reasons. One, because they don't want to do it. 
they want their adjustment mechanism to be broadly applicable and they don't want to give anybody a free pass, including us. And I think they also realize that if they do give somebody a free pass, they're going to have a WTO problem. And while Scott and I may be the last people in America that care about WTO rules, there are plenty of people in the European Union who care about WTO rules, or at least say they do, and don't want to run afoul. But for the U.S. to adhere to the CBAM is hard because the CBAM is fundamentally based on pricing carbon, determining a price for carbon, and then calculating the amount of carbon content of your export to the European Union. And then based on that, calculating how much tax you have to pay. The U.S. doesn't have a price on carbon. The administration gives no indication that it intends try to have a price on carbon. They're trying to convince the Europeans that a non-price approach to decarbonization, which means regulation, is an acceptable alternative, and there's no agreement. So I think the sides remain fairly far apart on fundamentals. But like I said, uh, you know, wait till around October 28th, and then we'll see what happens. Yeah, this is one, uh, I always defer to Bill on steel because of his years of sit on the Senate side when he was part of the, the uh, staffer for the Steel Caucus, or our senators who were part of the Steel Caucus, is a great familiarity with the industry that I lack. But I'm also always confused how these arguments between the United States and Europe start about one thing and always end up being about something else by the time we, we get toward the end. So I recall this started with a national security claim by President Donald John Trump, who uh, levied the 232 tariffs, the 232 tariffs, on aluminum and steel. And so we went from national security to overcapacity to sustainability to border-adjusted carbon pricing, which is quite a span of concepts, at least, and will probably be about something else before the end of October. But uh, I won't speculate on that. I do agree uh, we have a great acronym at C and GASA, but I think the G stands for global, if I'm not mistaken. How does the United States and Europe equal a global agreement? Maybe someone will explain it to me in the comments. One of the issues, I think, is our hope to and I believe in the U.S. offer that leaked in January, there is a mechanism for adding additional countries, although I don't think that's the main focus of the negotiation. Um, I should also add that steel continues to be a topic. On uh, on August 17th, there was a new uh, development in steel, uh, which will also be controversial, worth noting, because it's not part of GASA, but it tells you that the, the issue persists, and that is the Commerce Department preliminaries preliminarily assess dumping duties against three large producers of tin mill products. Tin mill products are the steel that goes into cans. So if you buy soup or anything else that comes in a can, that's what we're talking about. And they impose duties of, as I recall, 122% on Chinese tin mill imports, which are coming in, which are about 14% of our market. That will probably be enough of a duty to knock them out. And then a, uh, much lower duty, in both cases below 10%. Uh, Canada, and I, I believe Germany was the other one. This will be controversial because the people that make cans, in other words, not the people that make the steel, but the people that take that buy the tin mill products and turn it into cans, argue that these duties will increase the price of anything that comes in a can and that this is going to contribute to inflation. I don't completely buy that, but it's been an element of, of controversy throughout the debate on this. Uh, that piece is not over. This was just a preliminary finding, and the final one won't come out until early next year. So to come back to Gaza, we have this deadline on October 31st. What happens if negotiations are not concluded by then? Well, tariffs return, and that would be 25% from the U.S. 
And then the EU, the EU has a retaliation list that I haven't thought about for a while, but that would also return. I mean, that's not the only alternative. It's entirely possible that two parties will kick the can, no pun intended, and postpone, discontinue the status quo for a while longer. That's my expectation. And my expectation is if they do that, it'll probably be for a year because that will get us through the EU election, which is next year in June, and the American election, which is next year in November. So I shouldn't say a year, 13 months. Neither side wants this to get buried in politics. That would not be good for reaching an agreement. And maybe in that uh, interim, they can figure out what the negotiation is actually about. Would at least help. That is the problem. One would think on the surface that this ought not to be difficult in the sense that the U.S. wants co cooperation over capacity. I mean, the EU agrees to that. The U.S. agrees to the CBAM. We move forward. But doing that uh, has turned out to be very complicated. It be very difficult for the U.S. to go down the road of the carbon price right now. I think most environmental commentators would tell you that's the right answer. But there's no sign here that we're going to do that. And not doing that would require the EU to recognize a, you know, a non-price-based option for the CBAM. And if they, if they buy that for the United States, there'll be a long line of countries that are going to propose the same thing. And I'm not surprised the European, that the Europeans are resisting that. I certainly don't blame them. It's hard enough to measure border adjustment measures when you can price them. Trying to measure them when you cannot price them is much, much more difficult. All right. Thanks, guys. Let's move into another topic entirely, which is the latest U.S. imports data from China. Americans seem to be buying less and less from the PRC. It has dropped its shares of imports to a 20-year low, and the decrease is so pronounced that Mexico has actually supplanted China as the U.S. top trading partner this year. So, guys, what do you make of this trend? Well, that's happened before. Mexico, Canada, and China have kind of taken turns as number one trading partner. Mexico, I think, was number one for about three months a couple of years ago. And now it's back, barely ahead of Canada. But China has dropped significantly. I mean, it's still number three, but has dropped. The question that we've been debating, and I suspect Scott has some insight on, is, is this a blip or a trend? It's clearly now, I think, a six, seven-month trend in the United States. Uh, is it going to persist or is it going to go away? And regardless, why is it happening? And I would just pause it, then I'll shut up, that uh, it's turning out to be a trend, not a blip, uh, that it's happening partly because of slowing slowdowns in the U.S. economy. I think people are gradual slowdown, which is what the Fed wants. I mean, this is not bad news. And uh, decline of inflation, I think people, demand is softening, and that shows up in imports. China is not the only country where imports have declined. Uh, Vietnam is another one, interestingly. I'm not sure why. So it's partly here, but it's also because U.S. companies are reassessing the risk of doing business in and with China, and they're adjusting their supply chains accordingly, which means not always leaving China, but it is coming to mean developing redundant sources of supply for parts and components that are non-Chinese. And of course, if you do that, you know, you continue with your Chinese source of supply, but it means you're now buying stuff from somebody else, uh, which means you're buying less from China. So I think it's a combination of both those things. And I think both trends are likely to continue. 
Scott, do you agree or do you have a different economic take? Well, I think you are at the right starting point because there's, it's clear that fiscal policy of uh, higher interest rates in order to get inflation under control will do so at the cost of destroying demand and therefore slowing the economy. So whether it slows all the way into recession or whether it's successful at reducing inflation or not remains to be seen. But that is the natural consequence of higher interest rates is it would be an economic slowdown by the United States, which clearly reduces import demand. But I think there are a few other things going on that, that are worth commenting on. First is that terms of trade have worsened between uh, four, four imports from China. We recall that uh, the, the Section 301 tariffs put in place by President Trump remain there and from uh, President Biden. So we still have worsened to worsen terms of trade for Chinese imports. Second thing is that there is a, is a major effort to reduce U.S. purchases of goods made with forced labor. This affects the apparel and textile sector, or apparel and clothing in particular, not so much footwear, uh, but apparel from China is has declined substantially I think because of firms' risk management practices and wanting to move out of anything that can be questioned as uh, something that would be a product of forced labor. So that's a trend that that is also worsening the terms of trade. Second, there is a slowdown in China itself because of the structure of the Chinese economy. The workforce is gradually shrinking. That shrinking workforce is, is more expensive than it used to be. So labor costs are a bigger factor, and that is causing at the margin a lot of shifts in production. That's hard to measure in part, and there was a, a rather brilliant look, a top line at, in the Financial Times, at the number of economic reports that China actually publishes. And that that, that number of pure number of economic anal- reports about the condition of the Chinese economy peaked in 2010 and has been declining ever since. So they've, they've recently, for instance, canceled r- reports on the unemployment among young people. So th- there's a lot of key reports it just don't uh, just just don't happen anymore. It's not as easy to figure out as it might be, but there is a slowdown going on. The Chinese economy is changing, and that's affecting their competitiveness as an export platform. Finally, there are some exogenous uh, factors, exogenous to both the United States and China. One of them is we still haven't recovered in shipping in terms of cycle times across the turn times across the Pacific for cargo uh, ships, and that has led just in time producers to contemplate production in places like Mexico. I think Mexico is rising in, as a, a, a destination of, for imports to the United States for a couple natural advantages. One is clearly proximity, but also being part of USMACA, zero tariffs is a big piece of it. Mexico has had a strong auto economy because of its relationship with U.S. automakers and then supplier parts and equipment. So there's a, there's a good manufacturing culture in Mexico. It's not for free. It takes investment. It takes modernization. But there is a, there's a successful manufacturing culture to take advantage of for uh, Mexico. And so uh, I, I think that is probably the best explanation, whether how much of this sticks around after a few years, don't know. And a, a fast recovery of the U.S. might change things quickly. But I think this is a trend that is it looks to me to have some permanence. Yeah, I think the long-term trend is going to be away from China in the United States. I've maintained from the beginning, this is driven by companies and consumers. It's not really driven by the U.S. government. Uh, I think the U.S. government's not unhappy about that, but they're not driving the train here. Companies are making decisions that they think are in their own interest. And the Chinese have a growing history of weaponizing trade, and companies know that. They're not they're observant. They watch what the Chinese did to Australia, Lithuania, Korea, various Norway, Mongolia. There's a history of this. And they don't want to be in that 
position of vulnerability. So I think over the long term, 10 years, you're going to see significant changes in U.S. supply chains in ways that, that will reduce the volume of, of, of imports that we get from China. So stay tuned for that. But it, and this is not like many things in trade. This is not a tsunami. This is not all going to happen next month. You know, this is uh, sound we get out of the bag more than anything else. But speaking of vulnerabilities in our supply chains, and we look inwards for our third topic and talk about baby formula. We are now a year away from the 2022 shortage and some families are still reeling from it. Uh, the industry is still under pressure from federal regulators. And now we're trying to think about preventative measures to make sure that this kind of supply chain derailment doesn't happen again. So Trade Guys, can you tell us a little bit about last year's shortage. What were the main causes of it? Did government regulations have a role to play? Well, yes. And it, it turns out that the starting point is a innocuous little bacterium called the Chronobacter. Chronobacter is ubiquitous. It's, it's probably in soil and on surfaces almost everywhere we go and is largely harmless to healthy adults. It, however, is a dangerous bacterium for certain infants. And these are very young children with, with other maladies, but it can be fatal. And so it's an important thing to watch out for in food processing. And what started all this uh, sometime uh, in uh, 2021, I believe, was an infant who, who died of a, a corotobacter infection. And it was associated with a product produced in uh, by Abbott in the, what it was and still is the largest infant formula facility in the United States uh, in the state of Michigan, Sturgis, Michigan. This led to a number of investigations. Now, there are several rigidities of the market that are there because of government action. One of the things, this comes up as a trade topic because tariffs are fairly high on dairy products in these particular categories. So infant formula faces both quotas and tariff rate quotas. The out-of-quota tariff is around 17%. If you, in some cases, it's very complicated. Imports from Mexico have a have a hard quota, and imports are banned beyond that level. The Congressional Research Service estimates the average effective tariff for out of quota products is twenty five percent. That's a fairly high barrier to imports. Roughly, well, twenty five percent is the tariff on trucks, which is why they're all made here. But it's not just a trade problem. There's a regulatory problem, and it's not necessarily a problem, but it is the Food and Drug Administration's decision a long time ago to treat infant formula more like a drug than a food product. Most food products are regulated through cooperation with manufacturers and post-market surveillance is usually the way to identify problems. Food safety is an important topic and that works for a lot of foods, but it turns out that infant formula is regulated much more like drugs, a, a drug would be in that you have to have pre-market approval formulation. They're, they're very stringent packaging and, and uh, disclosure requirements. And then products are subject to, plants are subject to inspection. And there's much more pre-market approvals re required of insert formula than almost any other food product. So there is, it has a relatively rigid regulatory structure. Finally, there is a feeding program in the United States run by the U.S. Department of Agriculture called WIC, Women, Infants, and Children. This is a supplemental nutrition program. One of the products available on the supplemental nutrition program is infant formula. And this is managed in what I would consider a 1970s way. There are 50 state contracts because there are 50 state-level WIC organizations, and they do a bidding for the annual supplier for WIC. And whoever the winning company is or the winning brand is, is the supplier for that state for the entire year. It's the only brand that would have the discounts that are 
produced by the WIC program. So it's a subsidy that is subject to an annual competition. The problem is it turns out that WIC covers almost half the sales of baby formula. So what you have is a market that is import costs are, are very high. It's very difficult to import in the United States. You can't import product that is sold in your own domestic market. If you're a Canadian producer of infant formula and you have product for the domestic market that's safe and, and nutritious, but it is not does not meet FDA standards because of the way FDA regulates it. You got a 25% tariff and it, you only sell to half the market because every year the winner of the, as it might be considered, of the WIC auction covers all the WIC, pro, uh, WIC products and, uh, and you don't get to compete for any of those sales. So at any one time, only about half the market's contestable. Not likely to attract a lot of new entrants. So what's happened is that as the crisis deepened, so as we started out with 10 to 15% out of stocks, which is high, but not unmanageable. That is, when you go to the grocery store, you look at how the number of tags, the empty, the empty shelves with 10 to 15% of the tags, that would be that level of out of stocks. At the time that the plant in Sturgis, Michigan was closed for FDA inspections, that rose to the high 20s. And at the peak of the crisis, about 70% out of stocks levels at retail stores. So it was really very difficult to find formula. The government responded, but most of the responses by Congress and the administration were temporary in nature. So there was a temporary uh, reduction and elimination of the of the quotas and tariffs. There was a temporary suspension of misbranding problems and so off-label uses. And, and the FDA was, was able to approve a larger array of foreign import products for sale in the United States. So that, that, and that was also temporary. Finally, the WIC program has been subject to congressional and USDA action to make it more flexible, but it's still a one state-by-state winner-take-all auction that covers roughly half the market. Now, what that meant is that there was some slight easing, but nothing fundamentally changed about the structure of the market. So it's still a very fragile situation. So what should be done? I've got a couple of ideas. One is that we ought to find a group of countries that we think their, their food safety regulation is comparable to the United States and do what we did in prescription drugs, which is we had a zero for zero tariff negotiation in the Uruguay round and make it among the basically the countries with competent authorities. So U.S. formula makers would be able to compete for Canadian and European business and, and otherwise. So you essentially open up the market to, to products that are regulated as or that are judged safe by competent regulatory authorities. So you, you preserve safety but you, you, you liberate the market. You free it up from some of these restrictions. The other thing I would do is I would take the people who make baby formula or some of the smartest marketers in the world. These are, they're in the fast-moving consumer goods business, and they know how to get discounts to consumers. So find a way to rework the WIC program so it's not this 70s winner-take-all once-a-year auction on the supply side. Instead, go direct to consumer. Think about your GoodRx app on your phone. Now, I'm a I'm a beneficiary of government healthcare. I have a Medicare Plus plan or Medicare Advantage plan, but the GoodRx discounts work with Medicare Advantage. I presume something like that could work in this situation for WIC subscribers. So there's got to be a creative way to solve this and get the subsidies direct to consumers rather than free, freezing half the market for a year's time. I think there are things to be done. It would take a consistent, coordinated effort, and the temporary measures just are, are just that. They have temporary easing, but they don't fundamentally change any decision-making. They don't fundamentally change the structure that created the problems in the first place. And our grandchildren will bless you.
Yes. Yeah. Bill and I both have grandchildren, which have or recently have been consuming formula. So, and it is occasionally hard to find. I did notice that. I'm closer to consuming baby formula than to have grandchildren. Uh, but you never know, Depot. <laughs> don't, don't sell yourself short, buddy. <laughs> well, thanks for the tips, guys. You're consuming baby formula right now. I'm worried about you. Yeah, that's probably not the kind of employee you want to have. There are some laws against that, Bill. That's all right. You're in America right at the moment. No laws against that, just shortages. <laughs> <laughs> well, Trade Guys, thanks for another great episode. I'll see you both next week. Thank you. Thank you. To our listeners, if you have a question for the Trade Guys, write us at tradeguys at csis.org. That's tradeguys at csis.org. We'll read some of your emails and have the trade guys react to it. You've been listening to The Trade Guys, a CSIS podcast.